0: this in jesus name amen you may be seated please open up your bibles to ephesians chapter 5 we'll be looking specifically at ephesians chapter 5 verses 5 to 8 and if you were here with us last sunday you know that we really began looking at ephesians 5 verses 1 to 8 last sunday with the focus on verses 1 to 4 today we're looking at verses 5 to 8 and and this passage, these eight verses at the beginning of Ephesians 5, is you know, these are difficult, difficult verses. But they're not difficult because they're hard to understand. You know, they're actually quite clear and therefore fairly simple to understand. The difficulty is that they're so convicting and challenging and sobering. And even countercultural today in 2023, if we take these words of holy scripture seriously and friends we must take them seriously because they are absolutely true it's the word of god it's absolutely true they're given to us in love for our good now i want to quickly give a little bit of a review of what we covered last week because it's going to be so um relevant to the context of the verses today that that the the verses 1 to 4 in ephesians 5 call us to walk in love and to walk in purity you know, they call us to, to walk in love, but Paul calls us to imitate God as beloved children and walk in love, to walk in love, to, to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, to, if you look to your left and your right, to love the people who are here in this room, to love the ones in this room with, with self-giving, self-sacrificing, costly love in our actions and in our words, in our acts and our words that are expressed in the innumerable simple common ordinary every day and at times mundane and yet very real moments in our daily lives that paul calls us to to walk in love in ephesians 5 verses 1 and two. Second, he calls us to walk in purity and he has in mind two areas of purity for the christian purity in our sex lives and desires and purity in our speech so we see him, this call for purity in our, in our sexual lives and desires in verse 3 of Ephesians 5. But sexual morality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And so we said this last week that that phrase, sexual morality and all impurity, includes the full array of sexual sins which lie outside of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife in the boundaries of a loving marriage. And it includes premarital sex, adultery, pornography, sexual abuse, homosexuality, masturbation. It includes heterosexual sins, homosexual sins. And then we see in verse 3 that Paul also mentions covetousness. And we said last week that that Greek word can also be translated as greed. And so covetousness or greed in this context means that Paul's referring to a, a sinful sexual desire for someone or something that to which one has no right. A desire for that which is wrong to desire. Meaning that Christians are not to act on or even desire that which lies outside of sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife within the boundaries of of a loving marriage. That our sinful actions and even our sinful desires and inclinations are to be repented of, fought against. The Puritans would say mortified or put to death. And that includes sinful actions and sinful sexual desires that are heterosexual and homosexual in nature. And as Paul says, they, they must not even be named among you. Or as another translation puts it, there must not even be a hint of these sinful actions or desires among followers of Jesus. This is the, the call to purity in our sexual lives. But then in Ephesians 5.4, Paul calls us to purity in our speech. He says, let there be no filthiness or foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. In other words, locker room jokes, naughty humor, off color jokes are are out of place for the Christian. They literally do not fit the Christian any longer. But Paul says that we're, we're not to commit sexual sin. We must not even be named among us. We're not to tolerate sinful sexual desires in our hearts and our minds. And we are to avoid thinking and talking and, and joking and laughing about sexually immoral, impure, filthy, foolish, crude things and activities. So all of this is some of what we covered in last week's sermon. And I concluded last week with reminding us all of what we read in 1 John chapter 1 verse 9 which was at the heart of our call to confession today. It's an incredible promise. If we confess our sins, that God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, not some, not most, but all unrighteousness, including our sexual sins, including our sexual unrighteousness. You see, friends, this this is an incredible promise, an incredible invitation to bring all of your sins, even your sexual sins, your sinful actions, your sinful desires, your sinful speech, to Calvary's cross and realize that Jesus lived and he suffered and he bled and he died to fully cancel your sin debt, to cleanse you from all unrighteousness thoroughly, completely with his shed blood. It's an invitation, it's a call to to confess your sin, to repent of it, to turn away from it, to to flee the temptation, to to make the decision that today you're done with that, you're going to be at war with it, that's not who you are any longer. So please hear this truth, this assurance, that there is grace for all who will trust in Christ, all who will repent of their sins and trust in Him. As you've heard me say before, there is more grace in Christ than there is sin in our hearts. So let me specifically say a word to the teenagers and young single adults and hear me on this. Okay, the, the way of chastity and purity is both possible and worth it. It's absolutely possible and it really is worth it. It is possible and worth it to fight against sexual sin and sinful desires with all of your Holy Spirit enabled, with all of your intentionally prioritized, all of your consciously earnest, all of your prayerful effort, even in the face of the pressures you feel inwardly, physically, bodily, even with the peer pressure, the cultural pressure to, to not be approved, to not miss out, and even with the social costs that that holding on to and pursuing purity and obedience may result in. You see, sin is never ultimately worth it. And that's true. But our fight against sin, our pursuit of purity, is always worth it. And it's possible through the Spirit's enabling power in our union with Christ. Now, all of this brings us to our text today. And in many ways, our text today is is a harder text than even last week. Our text today has many warnings, especially a sober warning for all who refuse to repent of, to turn away from, and to fight against their sexual sins and their desires. So we'd be wise to heed these warnings that are given to us in love for our good. And So just like last Sunday, I'm going to read all of Ephesians 5 verses 1 to 8 to kind of remind us of this context, but I'm going to focus on verses 5 to 8 in the sermon. So here now, God's holy, inspired, inerrant, infallible, life-giving word. I'll begin reading in Ephesians 5, verse 1. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, No foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. This is the word of the Lord. And it's absolutely true. And it's given to us in love for our good. And so we're going to look at verses 5 to 8 under three headings. These are three warnings. First, there's a warning that eternity is at stake. Second, there's a warning that there are those who teach lies. Third, so, a warning that partners in sin are also partners in judgment. So three warnings, sober warnings. So the first, eternity is at stake. And so look with me at Ephesians 5, 5. And Paul begins, for you may be sure of this. His way of saying, hey guys, focus. If you've zoned out, pay attention, don't miss this. His way of saying, make no mistake. Don't miss what I'm about to say to you because this is serious and you should not, you must not miss it. You should not, you must not dismiss it. For you may be sure of this that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so I've already mentioned today and we saw last week that that phrase, Sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, Paul is there covering the full array of sinful sexual actions and sinful desires, both of heterosexual nature and homosexual nature. And then look at what Paul says. Everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, as I often do, I want to first be clear about what Paul's not saying and then be clear upon what he, on what he is saying. So first, Paul is not saying that even a single sexually immoral thought, word, or deed is enough to place someone in an unredeemable situation. Now, Paul's not saying that, that sexual morality is, is somehow the, the, the unforgivable sin. That if you commit sexual immorality, you sin sexually, that that now you're a lost cause. Now you are too far gone. Now there's no way that you can ever be forgiven. As we've already heard twice this morning, if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all. All means all. Not some, not most, but all unrighteousness. Even our sexual sins. Besides, if if that were the case, that, that if you sin sexually, then you are now unredeemable, then virtually no one would make it to heaven. But Paul's also not saying that faith plus sexual purity equals salvation. So please don't hear me say that, because that's not the case. It's not faith plus your best best efforts to avoid sexual sin and be sexually pure will then get you into heaven. The Bible doesn't teach that faith plus good works equals salvation, And the Bible does not teach that faith plus sexual purity equals salvation. Okay, that's that's not Paul's point. As Pastor Richard Phillips puts it, we all have plenty of sins to condemn us, even if we are sexually pure. Okay, well, Richard, well, what does verse 5 mean then? Okay, well, look at it. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. See, Paul is warning that everyone who has willingly and habitually given himself, given herself up to sexually immoral actions and desires, whether that be heterosexual or homosexual, without shame, guilt, regret, repentance, or a desire for repentance— without a desire to be free from this enslaving wickedness and perversion, that such a life is utterly incompatible with saving faith in Christ. As Pastor Ian Murray puts it, uh, Ian Hamilton puts it, if there truly has been a birth from above, like Jesus teaches Nicodemus in John 3, then that new birth will inevitably show itself in new life. That new life will be marked by new desires, new affections, new hopes, new loves, and new hates. And praise God that's true. And and, and that that doesn't mean perfectionism. We're not talking about never ever sinning ever again. What Paul's clearly talking about in verse 5 is is about a person who willingly and habitually gives themselves up to sexual morality without any care, without any concern about what God's word says, without any, any fear of the consequences and the impending judgment. But Paul Paul's talking about the one who gives himself up willingly and habitually to indulge in this sin. You see, regardless of what a person claims to believe about Jesus, regardless of their profession of faith, if they choose to live their lives without any concern for the clear commands of God regarding their sexual actions and desires, which are found throughout the Bible in the Old Testament and the New Testament, such a person's life reveals, sadly, tragically, that they do not know God's grace. that They've never experienced salvation in Christ. That there's been no new birth. That there's been no indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Ligon Duncan says, that is always the choice. God does not give us the choice of, you can have me, and you can have that which I hate. And you can have them both at the same time. He says, it's me and that which I love, or it is that which I hate without me. And that's your choice. But I do not come in the package of me and that which I hate, that which destroys you, because I love you too much. You see, in our passage, Paul's issuing a sober warning to those of us who think we can willfully and habitually rebel against God's word in our sex life and in our desires without shame and guilt and regret and repentance or even a desire for repentance, and there be no consequences. See, you look one more time at Ephesians 5.5, 5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Now, there are people in this very sanctuary who have been guilty of sexual morality and impurity and sinful, sexual, covetous desires, both of heterosexual and homosexual nature. And by the grace of God, they've repented and turned away from sexual sin and turned to faith in Christ. And by God's grace, day by day, they wage war on their sin. So therefore, even if you have been and currently are in the grips of long-term, deep-seated sexual immorality, please hear me and hear the word of God on this. You're not a lost cause. You're not too far gone. Trust in Christ. There's grace for you. He's the Savior you need. Confess your sin, repent of it, turn away from it, flee the temptation, make the decision today that you are going to be done with that, that's not who you are anymore, and you're going to be at war with that sin. Trust in Christ, and he can, he will forgive you. He'll wash you clean. He'll cleanse you from all, not just some, not just most, but all in righteousness, And he'll begin to transform you from the inside out. You See, there is grace for all who will repent of, their, repent of their sin and turn in faith to Christ. There really is more grace in Christ than there is sin in our hearts. Listen to a a passage that's very similar to our Ephesians 5 passage. It's 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to 11. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11. And such were some of you. Do you hear that? He's speaking to this church and says, such were some of you. But he says, that's that's not who you are now. You see, even if you have been and even are in in the grips of long-term, deep-seated sexual sin, I hope you see there's hope for you. There's hope for you. Such were some of you. But you were washed, sanctified, justified. Pardon of all your sin, even your sexual sin, and made righteous in God's sight because of Jesus' righteousness imputed to you and received by faith alone. So hear me on this, friends. This can be your story too. And praise God. But heed Paul's warning. Eternity is at stake. The second warning is that there are those who teach lies. Look at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And So first I want to talk about empty words, what that means, then we'll talk about God's wrath. So empty words, simply put, words that are empty of truth and therefore full of lies. Empty words, words that are perhaps half-truths and therefore whole lies. Empty words then there's god's wrath and i know that, that god's wrath i mean wrath is not a word that we use in our everyday conversations i know that but we see it's, it's a biblical word and you see god's wrath is, is is see it's not an imperfection in his character we shouldn't be ashamed of it it's not an imperfection in god god doesn't have flaws that god's wrath is a byproduct of his perfect holiness There are two quotes I want to share with you. The first is from John Stott. He says, God's wrath is his personal, righteous, constant hostility to evil. His settled refusal to compromise with it. And his resolve instead to condemn it. A perfect God would never compromise with evil. Sinclair Ferguson says, wrath is the settled hostility of God's holy will towards everything that rebels against him. God does not fly off the handle as we do in a fit of rage. That's not what his wrath is like. No, the terrible element in God's wrath is that besides being perfectly controlled, it is totally concentrated, absolutely just, and completely holy. You see, friends, the alternative to our holy God displaying wrath towards sin would be for God to turn a blind eye to sin and evil and wickedness. And I think we can all agree that ignoring or intentionally overlooking or winking at evil and wickedness and sin and perversion, that would not be an improvement in God. That's an imperfection in God's character. And so look again at verse 6. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Empty words. Words that are empty of truth, full of lies. You see, anyone who downplays the seriousness of unrepentant and habitual sexual immorality in our actions and even our desires is attempting to deceive you with empty words. And our Western world is eaten up with such empty words when it comes to human sexuality. You know These empty words, empty of truth and full of lies, are, are the cultural and societal air that we breathe, and that our children breathe, and watch, and listen to, and the aim of these empty words is deception, and to deceitfully condition us to, to question, to ignore, to reject what God's word plainly teaches all throughout, from Genesis to Revelation, but really pointedly in passages like Ephesians 5. To deceive us into questioning and ignoring and rejecting the truths the church has always universally believed until very, very recently. To any time anyone tries to tell us, you know, we need to, we need to reconsider. We need to rethink. We need to relearn what we think about a biblical sexual ethic. Those are empty words. See, let no one deceive you with empty words which insist that the church has gotten human sexuality all wrong for the past 2,000 years, and if we do not reconsider what we believe about sexual morality and sexual desires, then we'll end up on the wrong side of history. See, anyone who says we need to rethink, redefine, relearn, they're trying to deceive you. One pastor and scholar who's written some helpful books on this crucial topic is our missions conference speaker, Dr. Carl Truman, professor at Grove City College, and in in 2012, so a decade ago, he, he said the following a decade ago. We have a hard choice to make in the next decade. You really do kid only yourselves if you think you can be an orthodox Christian and be at the same time cool enough and hip enough to cut it in the wider world. Now some of us have the benefit of not being cool or hip at all and so this becomes you know that's not a that's not a struggle that some of us have frankly in a couple of years it will not matter how much urban ink you sport I think that's tattoos how much fair trade coffee you drink how many craft brews you can name how much urban gibberish you can spout how many art house movies you can find that redeemer figure in and how much money you divert from gospel preaching to social justice, maintaining biblical sexual ethics will be the equivalent in our culture of being a white supremacist. Now, what he said a decade ago is that maintaining, there will be a time, he said not in the not-too-distant future, a decade ago, that maintaining the biblical sexual ethics will be viewed as cruel and oppressive. Wicked thinking that, that, that sex is for one man and one woman in a lifelong marriage, it would be wicked and cruel and oppressive, it would be unthinkable for many, if not most, in our society. And When I first heard this a decade ago, you know what I thought? I thought, oh, man, this old professor, he's all riled up, exaggerating, hyperbole. He was right. Now, there's a couple of books that he's written recently that I would recommend to you. One is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. It's a big book. It's more academic in nature. Um, But then he also wrote a shorter book, uh, a more popular level book of the same material, more like for someone like me, titled Strange New World. And I recommend you either Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self or Strange New World or both and compare them. But I want to read to you really an extended quote from what he said. in in strange new world he writes and i think this is helpful because it helps us understand really the 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 overarching message of these empty words these these deceptive words that are coming at us that are the the cultural societal air that we and our children and our grandchildren breathe he says in short the modern self is one where authenticity is achieved by acting outwardly in accordance with one's inner inward feelings. Many of us are indeed particularly disturbed by the radical changes in society's sexual norms over recent decades, and even more so by the rise of the transgender movement. It's my belief, however, that these elements of what we call the sexual revolution are actually symptoms of this wider turn to expressive individualism in the West. Expressive individualism, this... This 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 belief that I must act on, act out on my inward feelings, no matter what they are. That I must not let anyone or anything, I must not let my family or society, or certainly not God's word, tell me what's proper for me to do and to believe and to act out on. That I must be true to myself at all costs, regardless of what anyone else thinks. and and most certainly regardless of what the bible says he goes on yet it would be a mistake to see the sexual revolution merely in terms of a loosening of moral boundaries it is that but he said it's not just that to include more forms of sexual expression what marks the modern sexual revolution out as distinctive is the way it has normalized sexual phenomena such as homosexuality promiscuity and even come to celebrate them That it's not merely to loosen or to expand sexual moral boundaries but to move all the way to where everyone must celebrate all forms of sexual morality and impurity and perversion it is not therefore the fact that for example modern people engage in gay sex or look at sexually explicit material while earlier generations did not that constitutes the sexual revolution. It is that gay sex and the use of pornography no longer involve the shame and social stigma they once did. Indeed, they have even come to be regarded as a normal part of mainstream culture. In short, the sexual revolution does not simply represent a growth in the routine transgression of, tr- of traditional sexual codes or even a modest expansion of the boundaries of what is and is not acceptable sexual behavior, not at all. Rather, it is the um, repudiation of the very idea of such codes in their entirety. It's, you know, how can you possibly believe in a biblical sexual ethic? How could you I mean that's that's ridiculous, if not cruel and oppressive. More than that, it has come in certain areas, such as that of homosexuality and transgenderism, to require the positive repudiation of traditional sexual mores to the point where belief in or maintenance of such views has come to be seen as ridiculous and even a sign of serious mental or moral deficiency. That anyone who believes what God's word says in Ephesians 5 is at best ridiculous or mentally deficient or at worst has moral deficiencies and is dangerous and cruel and oppressive. If the individual's inner identity is defined by sexual desire, then he or she must be allowed to act out on that desire in order to be an authentic person. The point is clear. Sexual codes must be shattered. You know, not merely loosened, not merely expanded, but but shattered if human beings are to be truly free. Those things that inhibit the free sexual expression, even of young children, are oppressive and prevent individuals from truly being themselves. Now, can't you see what, what has been and is happening in our world? Paul says, Let no one deceive you with empty words, with words that are empty of truth and full of lies. But tragically, sadly, many have been deceived and are being deceived, even inside the church, even behind pulpits. That many pastors, churches, even entire denominations are so afraid of being viewed as ridiculous or foolish or even as dangerous and cruel and oppressive that they've made the conscious decision to cower before the world and either reject the clear teaching of God's word regarding sexual morality, or to try to soften and to mute it in the name of winsomeness. Now, Now, being winsome is wonderful. But the problem is that that these folks who are compromising and cowering before the world, that they believe the lie, the empty words, that if we are nice enough and winsome enough, then our neighbors will like us. And if they like us and we don't offend them, we're careful not to offend them with the truth of God's word, then maybe, just maybe, they'll attend our church. And so if we're preaching through Ephesians, we just kind of skip over Ephesians 5 to 8. Or we apologize for it as if we need to be ashamed of God's word. You see, brothers and sisters, I, I don't enjoy preaching texts like this. I don't enjoy preaching sermons like this. This is work. It's never my desire or my intention to be offensive to anyone in my preaching. I don't want to be a stumbling block to any sinner coming to faith in Christ. I'll confess, I want you to come back week after week after week, and, and to hear God's word proclaimed. That's what I want. However, God's word is often offensive and even foolish to us before we see our sin for what it is. It's often offensive and foolish before we see Christ for who he is, before we come to trust in, in Christ and his finished work and his life, death, and resurrection on our behalf. As Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1:23 and 24, But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Words that are empty of truth, full of lies. Let no one deceive you with half-truths. Half-truths in the name of winsomeness. In the name of missional living. Words that say things like this, God is, is too kind and too loving to condemn anyone to hell because of an unrepentant lifestyle of sexual morality. I mean, come on, Richard, no one is perfect. You know, God, surely God grades on a curve. I mean, as long as your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds, you're, you're fine. You see, friends, it, it's not loving to tell someone, it's not loving to tell someone Go ahead and just do what you want in the bedroom. It's not loving to say, go ahead and and be your authentic self and indulge in sexual morality and adultery and premarital sex and homosexuality and pornography. It's just totally fine. There's no danger. There's no condemnation. There's no judgment. There's no wrath to come for those who are defiant in their unrepentance. It's not loving to say, this is no big deal. This is not a big deal to God. That's not loving. You know what loving is? It's Telling people the truth. It's loving to tell them what Paul writes in Ephesians 5, verses 5 and 6. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. You see, this is the truth. This is an invitation for anyone who will come to come to Christ, to repent, to confess our sins, for God is faithful and just, to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So there's a warning that eternity is at stake. There's a warning that there are those who teach lies. Thirdly a warning that partners in sin are also partners in judgment in verse 7 Paul writes therefore do not become partners with them now Paul's not prohibiting any and all contact or association or even a level of friendship with those who are living in habitual unrepentant sexual morality otherwise you know we would have to go live on the moon and we certainly wouldn't be able to share the gospel with them or invite them to join us at church and so, I make mean, no mistake, I mean, sinners of all types and stripes are welcome to come and to hear God's word preached to them. Right? All are welcome, all are invited to come to trust in Christ, turn from their sin, walk in newness of life. As we say every week, to whosoever, wh- whoever will come, this church opened wide her doors, and we mean that. Okay, Richard, but if Paul's not prohibiting any and all contact or association with those living in habitual, unrepentant sexual morality, then what's that warning in verse 7? Well, Paul's warning against participating with them in their sin. See, that's the danger. The warning is be on your guard and be honest about where you are. Be honest about your own sin. Be honest about where you're vulnerable. Don't let the way that sexually immoral friends, neighbors, coworkers live draw you into their sin. Don't let their sin influence the way you live. See, Paul's point is that if you partner with them in their unrepentant, habitual sin, then you will partner with them in the judgment that awaits. And if their sin is influencing the way you live, then hear me on this. You're not the one to minister to them. You should pray for them. We pray for God to send someone to them, but do not become partners with them in their sin. And don't let their sin change your convictions about the clear truth of God's word. Hear me on that friends. Parents, grandparents, do not let your children sin. Don't let it call you to rethink, relearn, reevaluate God's clear teaching in his word about a biblical sexual ethic. I know that's impossibly hard. So come talk to us. We we'll want to talk to you about this, but but don't the, the answer is not the answer is not to rethink what the Bible clearly says. You see, we are to be salt and light to a dark world. And the light of our lives, the light of the gospel, is supposed to invade the darkness. But that only happens if we're living or walking as children of light. So look at verses seven and eight. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. And notice what Paul says. For at one time you were darkness. He doesn't say we were at one time merely living in darkness. That one time the darkness was all about us. He says, no, we were darkness. Sinclair Ferguson says, we not only lived in darkness, we were darkness. The darkness was within and was therefore inescapably part of our being. We lived in it. It lived in us. We could not see in or beyond the darkness until, until the light of the glory of God in Christ shone in our hearts. That's from 2 Corinthians 4.6. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So look one more time at verses 7 and 8. Therefore do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. See, Paul, he goes back to what he's been repeating since the beginning of chapter 4. You were this... But that's not who you are now. So be who you are. You were darkness. But then God saved you by his grace in Christ. And you're now light in the Lord. So if you're here this morning and you're not yet a follower of Christ, please know I'm so glad you're here. I would love to tell you my story of becoming a Christian as a young adult. I would love to hear your story. I'd love to hear your reaction to this sermon. Even this sermon. Let's, let's talk about it. I'd love to do that. But here's the invitation. If you are tired of the darkness... And if you're honest, and I hope you'll be honest, and you say, listen, this is, the, the, the darkness is so much darker than you know. I'm tired of it. If you want to be saved, you want to be forgiven, you want to be cleansed of all unrighteousness, come to Christ. He's the Savior you need. Put your faith in him. There is grace for you. If you're in Christ understand what paul's saying what he's been saying you have a new identity you're now united by faith to jesus christ who is himself the light of the world therefore paul's point is be who you are and walk in the light walk as children of light and remember right the christian life is often referred to as walking in the bible and walking suggests the idea of steady resolved effort and progress you know step by step in the same direction you know what, we, what, what what the theological word for this progress is, the step-by-step, ongoing, lifelong progress? It's sanctification. The Shorter Catechism, question 35, gives us a wonderful definition of what is sanctification. And that is, sanctification is a work of God's free grace. It's not a singular act. It's not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing, every day, every week, every month, ongoing work of God's free grace whereby we are renewed in the whole man after the image of god and are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness a christian sanctification is an ongoing work of god's free grace which involves a lifetime of steady purposeful intentional holy spirit enabled walking in the light okay and so i'm ending with this but don't leave this sanctuary misunderstanding romans 5 1 to 8 Paul's point is not that faith plus sexual purity equals salvation. And Paul's point is that if you commit one sexual sin, then you're suddenly unredeemable, unsavable by God in Christ. That's not the point. Paul's point is, one, it's an invitation. There's grace for you, even if you have been entangled in the grips of deep-seated sexual sin for as long as you can remember. There's grace for you. Come to Christ. But his point is also, dear Christian, be who you are. See, he's calling you, he's calling me, he's calling all who profess to be Christians to walk in a manner worthy of our calling, to pursue spiritual growth and maturity, to no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. He's calling us to no longer live as the Gentiles do. That's who we were, that's not who we are. He's calling us to no longer walk as we once did in the futility of our minds. He's calling us to put off the old self, to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. He's calling us to be imitators of God as beloved children. Not to, to try hard to imitate God and to be good so that maybe God would love us one day, but because God has already loved us in Christ, because he's already set his electing saving love on us he's already adopted us into his family as children be imitators of god as beloved children he's calling us to walk in love to walk in sexual purity to walk in purity of speech to walk as children of light simply put to be who we are now in christ what paul's telling us over and over again is that that's possible and that is worth it. He's going to continue developing this theme in the passages that are to come in Ephesians 5. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's absolutely true, that it's given to us in love for our good. Thank you for these warnings. Please write them upon our hearts. May we heed them May we trust that they are true. May we never forget that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just. To forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all, not just some, not just most, but all unrighteousness. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ. We thank you for the indwelling Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name.